0: Thanks very much, and thanks for the invitation um, to speak here. Um, I think it's a really great series, a really great concept for a series, um, to look more closely at relationships among women, particularly in this case, um, creative relationships. Um, I thought I'd start with my title, which is, um, as anybody involved in the poetry world in Ireland will realise is uh, ironic, um, since ever since people have been talking about uh, the fact that poetry doesn't pay, um but one of the one of the things I wanted to focus on um in this talk on the Eight Sisters, which will really um emphasize a little bit more the work of Elizabeth Yates, who was um in charge of the Kula Press, um, while also acknowledging the role of her sister um, Susan, who was involved in the embroidery and the visual arts um dimension. But one of the things I wanted to focus on in this talk is Uh, the idea of family and the significance of a family context in forming uh, women creatively um, and in offering both challenges and opportunities to women to fulfil their creative lives. Um, And the the Eight Sisters I think exemplify um, that sense of both opportunity and challenge um, at a very particular time in in Ireland's history. The other thing I wanted to um, think about really from the very beginning is that while I'm thinking about and talking about two very specific women, two women from a very famous Irish family, the story of the Kula Press um, and the larger story of the Dunemer Industries and Guild is one of a larger body of women as as craftspeople. And there are many people, many families, perhaps some people here, who will have had family connections to that industry, or female ancestors who worked um, in that field. And I think this, this is a really interesting moment to start reclaiming those stories and to start thinking of the idea of sisters, uh, not just as siblings, not just as two important women I'm talking about today, but rather as a larger sense of sisterhood, a larger sense of collaborative purpose on the part of, uh, of women artists. But I will begin, obviously, with the Yates family uh, as as the center of this talk. Um, on, on the slide there, you can see, Uh, the very famous self-portrait of John Butler Yeats. It's an amazing, uh, a really beautiful portrait um, and um, a representation also of his wife, Susan Polluxman. Um, There was a a great exhibition in the model um, in Sligo of artworks by John Butler Yeats and by the Yeats family as a whole. And I think it really uh, flags up the really interesting intersections, stylistic intersections of the visual production of this family and some of that I'll, I'll be touching on today in relation to the production of the books in particular. Obviously the Yates family, uh, they're an extraordinary family um, of the two parents you see there and four siblings, two, two sons and two uh, daughters. And They also exemplify uh, not only creative genius in different manifestations and in different art forms, um, but also, I think, the sense of both the tensions uh, and and the productive collaboration that can emerge from that family setting. Now, a lot of the terms in which we see the family uh, and their achievements, I think, are shaped by... Uh, by that man, by John Butler Yeats's decision, career decisions, I think, and personal decisions, shaped uh, the fate of his family in important ways, I think. Um, John Butler Yeats was trained as a lawyer um, but he didn't want to be a lawyer. He wanted to be an artist. Um, and as you can see, if you if you look at some of his artworks, you know a, a lot of critics would see him as not a particularly significant artist, especially if we compare him to um, to his son um, Jack Yates. Um, but his work is extremely accomplished and shows great insight, and I think great um, affinity for um, the subjects of his work, and particularly the, the people who sat for him, many of whom were his family members. But his decision to pursue um, a life as an artist, uh, which was not uh, well rewarded uh, financially and was very created instabilities in the family structure, I think, um, had a a shaping force on the lives of all four of his children. It put a lot of pressure on his marriage. His wife, um, Susan Pollux, who was from Sligo, was from a wealthy, at least comfortable, merchant family. And when she married him, she had an expectation of being uh, the wife of a man in in the legal profession, not the wife uh, of a penniless artist. Um, And so that friction and that tension, and also the the economic disadvantage uh, that that decision Created for the family, I think, um, had a had a shaping force on the the children. Now um, this shows two portraits um, of the two daughters that are the focus of my talk today. On the left is Elizabeth. Um, or L- Lolly as she was uh, known to her friends and family um, and she is the main focus really because she is the, the, the head of the cooler Press uh, and the woman who, who put these um, amazing works into print. On the right is Susan or Lily Yates who was the older of the two siblings and um, she was the one who, whose focus was more on the visual arts and embroidery and needlework um, in the organisation. So they occupied two quite different roles as I'll explain later Um, in the cooler industries. But they also occupied two quite different roles in the family, too. Um, Susan the elder was a quieter woman. Um, She was, um, in many ways, happier in, in the home or the domestic environment, whereas Elizabeth was a more gregarious character and very much wanted to forge a career outside the home. So in that way, they had two slightly different profiles, I think, as women of their generation. Um, Susan Yates on the right there was also very close to her father, uh, and a lot of our understanding of that, uh, those family dynamics come through the letters between them, not all of which still exist, some of them um, were destroyed, um, but both published and unpublished letters uh, between them are very revealing of the particular um, family dynamics. The two men of the family, of course, are very famous on the left-hand side there. um, W.B. Yeats, um, arguably Ireland's most famous 20th century poet, winner of the Nobel Prize in 1923. And then on the right, um, Jack Yeats, again, uh, one of Ireland's most famous artists. Now, um, the family... um, they um, had strong connections, as we know, to County Sligo, to the west of Ireland, and that landscape and imaginary uh, very much shaped their their visual work um, very strongly, and also um, W.B. Yeats's poetry. But they also spent um, a lot of time in London. They had very strong um, connections to London. I'll be talking in a minute about the foundations of the sisters' education in the arts and crafts movement being very much connected um, to a London environment. So in many ways, the sisters' lives um, exemplify that bringing together of Irish and English heritage and influence. Um, Susan the Elder uh, was born in, in Sligo, um, but the younger, uh, Elizabeth, was born in London. So, you know, even in their in their biographies, if you like, they exemplify um, that kind of cross-fertilisation uh, between Irish and uh, English culture. Now, I mentioned the economic uh, challenges of the family, and these were considerable. Um, they were in part fostered not just by um, John Butler Yeats' decision to become a visual artist, but the fact that he didn't approach that decision uh, in a very business-like way, um, he was a very slow worker, so he didn't produce a great deal of work. He also tended um, to produce work that he was interested in doing rather than work that would pay. Um, and the number of family portraits, for example, that he created is evidence of that. You know, The fact that, that the intimacy and engagement with the sitter in that case was more important than uh, making money from uh, from the art. Now, um, this placed pressure on the family and on his marriage, Uh, but it also, I think, fostered in his two, in all his his children, but I think arguably the two daughters, um, a very strong awareness of the need for economic independence and the need to think of their creative lives in business terms. Um, They were aware of their need to survive as artists and that that did have a particular economic um, implication. So in contrast to um, some other female artists of their generation who would have come from wealthy families or had um, a backup, if you like, financial backup and independence, um, these two women were very conscious of how their work operated in the marketplace um, in that sense. Um, The other tension, I suppose, observable tension um, when we look at the two women um, is we see in in that family and in those two women some of the conflicts that women of that generation um, faced in terms of how they constructed their careers. So the extent to which um, John Butler Yeats had an expectation that he often voiced in letters and so on, um, that the daughters would have a presence in the home and that the household yeah. would be run, because once they, um, they, they became adults effectively, they became responsible for the household due to the ill health of their mother. Um, so there was definitely the expectation, I think, on the male members of the household that, the daughters would play a role in the, in that sort of domestic space and that inevitably cut across their ambitions as artists and their ambitions in the public realm and i think that contrast is something that women of their generation registered very strongly on the one hand the ambition to to have a larger role to to have a network to have a public um, uh, participation in a public artistic culture, uh, but on the other hand, very often having, you know, family commitments or responsibilities that might um, hold them back from that um, from that development. So. Um, It's interesting, there's an interesting um, quote here from a letter um, from John Butler Yeats, from the father to Susan, um, the eldest of of the two daughters, um, in the late 90s. And the very uh, fact of this letter and this expression, I think, um, shows the the pressure that Susan had internalised in terms of holding the family together. Um, Susan worried a lot about the family dynamics and how the various um, relationships within the family um, developed and various conflicts that emerged uh, and John Butler Yeats is trying to um, set her mind at ease um, uh, arguably I think perhaps, um, perhaps placing more responsibility on her uh, as he does so he writes you must not bother about us even when lying awake with neuralgia you must not think of it but just always assume that things will come right in the future as they have in the past some day Jack will be a substantial man with a cheerful, kind-hearted spouse and an open-handed way of welcoming friends, and Willie will be famous and shed a bright light on us all, and sometimes have a little money and sometimes not. Lolly will have a good, prosperous school and give away as prizes her eminent brother's volumes of poetry. And I think it's interesting the way the father sketches out this, you know, almost idyllic relationship among, uh, supportive relationship among the members of the family, while acknowledging that there is Susan lying awake in bed, worrying about um, all this. Um, Jack uh, is an interesting case in point in terms of the issue of the responsibility of the children economically. Um, because Jack, when he was in art college, met um, his future wife, um, uh, Cotty, as she was known, Mary Cottenham, um, and he wanted to marry her, so he was aware that he needed to forge a career, a paying career, in order to marry her, and so um, he took on quite an arduous um uh, production of work in, in this case um, sketches and cartoons uh, for newspapers and magazines in order to earn the money um, to to marry her uh, and therefore create that family life and uh, there was quite a lot of anxiety about his decision to do this and uh, how he was perhaps compromising the independence of his art by taking this um, money generating work and that's reflected in that uh, in that quote there and um, the other um, thing I think that's reflected there is the the extent to which, from an early stage, um, William Butler Yeats's prowess as a poet and the sense that he would become famous, I think, is very much um, in the father's mind. But I wanted to begin um, talking about the two sisters' artistic achievements by going to the history of the arts and crafts movement in England because it's really in that movement um, that the two sisters, they get their training and they get their sense of the importance of collaborative arts practice. Now, um, the Yates family, when when John Butler Yates, and decided to make his living as a portrait painter, they moved to London and they lived in a place called Bedford Park. And this was a very important location for the family because it was an arts community. So it was in a sense a refuge for, for various artists and writers. And so it created a kind of informal um, network um, of, of figures that many of whom were involved in the arts and crafts movement. Um, there were also uh, many people of Irish background moving through that community and in particular calling into the Yates um, family home. So people like John O'Leary, uh, a famous um, political figure who um, uh, William Butler Yates would later write about and, and be friendly with, and was one of those figures. Catherine Tynan, uh, the Irish poet, um, and Susan Mitchell. And another um, poet and writer, with two other figures that um, both Yeats sisters were friendly with. Now these figures are important, um, these two women are important, not only in offering friendship to to the Yeats sisters, but in also revealing the significance of the role model of the Irish writer. Catherine Tynan in particular started publishing her poetry very young, she was quite a prodigy, um, and she was extremely prolific. Um, And so had a profile as a writer early on. And so a figure like that did offer the two sisters um, a model for the idea of the woman artist or the woman writer um, as a person of singular achievement. They also met, of course, people like Maud Gonne, who they were much less impressed by. Um, interestingly, there's quite a bit of uh, bitching about Maud Gonne in the letters. Um, so they had very pronounced opinions and affinities, um, the two sisters, in terms of their and um, their response to the various figures moving through the household. And it's interesting as well how their letters offer very often a kind of counter-narrative to the one we might build up if we read Yeats's poetry um, or his correspondence um, and documents so it's very interesting how the women's the documents relating to these two women um you know cre- gives another perspective another another angle if you like on the eight story but the most important contact the two women made in that early phase, in the phase in Bedford Park, was with William Morris. William Morris, of course, the, the founder, in effect, of the arts and crafts movement in England. Um, and both he and his household and his larger group of associates will be very important, uh, both in terms of training for the two women, especially um, Lily um, in the visual arts, but also in, um, in creating this kind of network of expertise that the women would draw on later when they were doing their own work. So um, in 1888, Susan Lily Yates began working directly for William Morris. Um, She was really under the direction of his daughter, May, but she worked in Kelmscott House um, in in this workshop setting, Um, so particularly doing embroidery and um, work as a needlewoman, effectively. And this gave her two advantages. First of all, it was a very vibrant, um, creative space uh, for a woman of her generation. Um, It also taught her a lot about collaborative arts practice, uh, about the workshop as a way of producing um, work collectively. um, And it enabled her, obviously, to develop her craft and her expertise in embroidery in particular. But it didn't give her a great deal of freedom as an artist, and um, so a situation like that, on the one hand, gave her profile and insight, but it didn't give her a lot of freedom. And ultimately, I think it was that lack of freedom, creative and artistic freedom, that would um, cause her eventually to withdraw from that, um, from that setting. And um, her withdrawal was also precipitated by. Um, a difficult relationship with Mae Morris. Uh, May was quite a difficult character. Um, she had quite a temper. She was quite and, you know, she managed um, her her workshop a little heavy-handedly, and um, when the workshop was moved from Kelvscott House to Hammersmith, um, the benefits, the sense of community, and the sense of these various artistic figures moving through that space and that sense of kind of collaborative endeavour, um, was reduced. And I think this this um, was something that Susan Yates felt the lack of. You know, she felt the diminishment of that that. Um, that larger kind of network of support because while she was working in Kelmscott House she had access to a lot of figures like uh, Bernard Shaw for example Cunningham Graham Emery Walker who would be a very important influence um, on on uh, Elizabeth's printing later on um, so these figures would all be figures that the two sisters could go to for advice um, later on so um Another interesting um, dimension of that experience in Kelms House, in particular, um, when we think about women and women artists of this generation, is the extent to which we had both a, a kind of domestic and workshops, or a, a living and working kind of space um, that the women could operate out of. And so, in many ways, there was a sense in which there, were, there was a domestic or a familial structure underpinning um, that, that work relationship. relationship and space, and it was very important, I think, for women of that generation how those two elements could be combined, so how their professional lives and the more domestic spaces uh, could combine. Now, at the same time as the the sisters were engaging and and getting their their training in the arts and crafts movement in London, um, there was obviously a rise in Ireland in um, interest in specifically, specifically national cultural production, obviously, that we know as the Irish Revival. Um, and so this is a time of major change in Ireland, obviously politically and culturally, um, and there is a very specific desire to form an Irish cultural identity through visual arts, through writing, through theatre, but also through um, the Irish language and through other um, like sporting and business um, developments that were very much designed to develop Irish production um, and Irish self-sufficiency in that sense. Now in one way this movement was was innovative, was political, was future orientated you know and obviously um, it very much ran on sort of parallel tracks with the, um, the independence movement Um, But it also was about tradition too, so it was about reclaiming an Irish tradition, it was about looking to the past, so whether that was Ireland's visual history and its its literary history uh, and also its Irish language heritage as a way of drawing what was strongest in Irish cultural production forward um, for the future. And so it it combined in really interesting ways, on the one hand, figures like W.B. Yeats, who is associated with with high art, with very high artistic achievement, but on the other hand, with a more um, utilitarian or popular um, cultural movement too. Um, And so the drawing together of those two elements, I think, is very important in terms of how these two women fitted into that uh, movement. And it's also interesting that and some of the um, attributes of the arts and crafts movement, which were the creation of beautiful things, but useful things, you know, everyday objects that would be uh, beautifully made, um, but uh, but functional. I think that dimension is a really interesting overlap with some of the aims of, uh, of revivalist art. Now, um, there's been a lot of really interesting work done, obviously, on the arts and crafts movement and its influence on the revival, especially um, the work of Nicola Gordon-Bow, which has been very important in this, and and many other figures, too. And this particular quote um, that uh, Nicola includes in her essay, The Book in the Irish Arts and Crafts Movement, is particularly interesting, I think, in addressing that question of um, tradition and innovation at this particular period in Irish cultural history. And this is from T.W. Rolleston. The age of tradition and authority is past. In their stead, the individual has emerged, bringing all things to the test of his own personality. Don't imitate. Don't conceal the qualities of your material. Study arts of the past above all those of your own land. But remember that you do not live in the times of Brian Baru, but of Mr. Edison. Uh, which I think is very kind of witty. Um, but the idea that, yes, there is a very, an important traditional element, an important sense of continuity in art, but it's also about modernity. It's also about using new technologies. It's about looking to the future of artistic production. Um, And in some ways, I think we can see the Yates family as exemplifying some of those tensions, you know, the desire to to look back and preserve tradition, but also the desire to be at the cutting edge um, and doing new things. So um, this movement, the, the, the revival movement more broadly, obviously had an opening for book production, given the importance of literary production generally, uh, both in prose and, and poetry, uh, but also um, theatre and performance production and all the kind of ephemeral printing, for example, that go along um, with that with those those developments. There was obviously an opportunity for um, the development of a specifically Irish publishing industry, if you like. Now, um, W.B. Yeats, of course, was on to this. Um, from a very early stage, he was very conscious, uh, not only of, of creating those opportunities, but also of the need to manage his own uh, publishing career to his own advantage. Um, and, of course, there's a whole other paper uh, Uh, to be given on on uh, WB Yeats's uh, publishing practices and how he approached um, uh, these issues. Uh, But from an early stage, um, Yeats the poet was paying a lot of attention to how his work would be produced in terms of uh, the journals and newspapers he would publish in, but also how his books would appear. Um, he published early on with um, a publisher called Bullen in, based in London and you can see in, uh, well, in a number of libraries um, both here and also in, in Trinity and in UCD some very fine examples of those early Yeats works that really exemplify the strong attention that Yeats put into design of those early books. So we know from early in his career he's on the lookout for a way of managing the production of his work in a way that will be beautiful that will create a beautiful object, um, as well as um, some meaningful poems. So we know that Yeats was trying to cultivate these relationships and also trying to interest people in Dublin, and particularly existing publishers, in producing high quality um, work. But we also know um, that this was a little bit of an uphill struggle, if you like, for him. Uh, because the publishing industry in Ireland at the time tended to be quite conservative. Um, it it relied often heavily on the production of religious material, so um, uh, religious... Uh, books uh, and ephemera, um, and you know th- that market was a very strong one um, in the Irish printing industry. And so publishers like M H Gill or James Duffy were not particularly on the lookout for innovative literary work to publish because they didn't see it as their core business, and they didn't really see it as a um, as a way of of uh, generating readers and an interest. And um, so Yeats ha- had a difficult job, if you like, in interesting. Um, Publishers in more innovative literary practice. So, in many ways, um, when he saw an opportunity emerging for his sisters to get involved in this business themselves, he saw an ideal way uh, for him to foster this development of the printing of the beautiful book in Ireland, but also as a way of controlling that, you know, as a way of claiming that space and in many ways shaping the kinds of work um, that would be produced. But really the impetus, the impetus for this, the beginnings of the Eight Sisters' great work, uh, first with the Dunneer uh, press and industries, and then later with the Coler press, which was a continuation of the two uh, came through the figure of Evelyn Gleason. And Evelyn Gleeson was um, a suffragist and a woman very interested in Irish culture. She was living in London. She was participating in the Eighth Circle. Um, She was part of the Irish Literary Society. That's how the the sisters met her. But she had some ill health, and she wanted to move back to Dublin. And she saw um, a, a great opportunity then to move back to Ireland and to found this industry that she felt would fill a particular gap and she approached the two Yeats sisters uh, because she knew of their talents and their their varied talents, and obviously their their brother's uh, work in both uh, poetry and the visual arts. And so she saw this as a a perfect collaboration. So she has to be credited, if you like, with uh, really getting the ball rolling and offering the opportunity for the two sisters um, to fulfil their own artistic destiny, if you like. Uh, At the time, Elizabeth... Who was an accomplished artist and trained as a teacher? She produced um, a number of teaching manuals um, that were very successful uh, for the teaching of, of painting. Um, and uh, Susan was also obviously involved in, in the visual arts. Um, but they were really quite unfulfilled in a sense of uh, their own creative purpose perhaps hadn't been fully realized at this point. So in 1902, Evelyn Gleason founds the Dun-Emer, um Guild, and the name Dunemer obviously is very much gesturing to the revival um, emphasis on mythology, so it's, it's uh, a reference to the Cúchulainn myth, uh, to the wife of Cúchulainn, renowned for her beauty and artistic skills, so it was a perfect um, emblem, if you like, of that sense of, of beauty and creative production. But um, it had a very specific remit Um, it was very influenced by the arts and crafts movement and it was very much about the handmade thing. So it was very much pushing back against um, industrial developments, uh, looking at the idea of craft and looking at the idea of um, specifically using Irish materials, so it was very much harnessing that revivalist aim um, of, of the producing things that were Irish in, in every way. Now these two photographs are ones you'll come across a lot um, if you're looking at um, representations of the Dunymer um, industries. And there are other beautiful uh, representations, I think, and and interesting ones as well. They give us, again, insight into the space of creative production for these women. The smaller um, picture shows the printing uh, room with the printing presses, and the larger one shows the embroidery uh, workshop. We can see there, of course, as well, the collective dimension of this endeavour and the fact that the two Yates sisters worked alongside their employees, so it was very much that sense of a, an equal collectivity uh, involved in, um, in the production of the work. Um, so the two women were not directing operations, they were very much involved in the production um, themselves, and there are numerous other um, representations uh, of that. Now, this sense of Irishness um, comes through both in um, the the first prospectuses of the Dunymer Industries and in various publicity that they put out, because they were conscious from the beginning of the need to um, create uh, a customer base, if you like, for this material, which was um, obviously collectible, obviously material that was quite expensive, um, So it wasn't, in that sense, everyday material, but at the same time it was intended um, to be, I say, used and functional, um, and that was the kind of market that the, the women wanted to appeal to. And this is an interesting description, I think, of their aims. Everything as far as possible is Irish. The paper, the books, the linen of the embroidery, and the wool of the tapestry and carpets. The designs are also of the spirit and tradition of the country. The education of the work girls is also part of the idea. They are taught to paint and their brains and fingers are made more active and understanding. Some of them, we hope, will become teachers to others so that similar industries may spread throughout the land. Now, that idea of um, education was very important. And the sisters and Evelyn Gleason were all committed to that idea of the industries as, you know, not just about the production of these beautiful objects, but about training. Um, And there was a lovely exhibition actually in the National Gallery um, about the artwork of this generation um, of women. Um, And it really shows, I think, the importance of that sense of training and education among the group. It also speaks back to what i said at the beginning about the importance of you know the most minor figures if you like and perhaps the youngest women who participated in this this grouping as well as as you know the more developed artists that they all played their role the educational remit um, took a number of different forms the girls um, Went, spent time in the National Library, they attended talks, they had tutors coming um, to teach them. They were also trained, obviously, by the sisters themselves directly, and they had the um, uh, lessons in I- the Irish language, for example, and so on. But all of these, while really significant developments uh, in terms of education and in terms of future generations of cultural production, did put pi- quite a bit of pressure on the industries and on their business model, if you like, because it did mean that a lot of the time was spent in education rather than in production, um, which obviously meant challenges um, to, to the kind of commercial, commercial viability um, of the industries. Now, from the beginning, I think, um, the grouping was seen as having, uh, obviously, a collect- being a collective endeavour with a shared aim, but with uh, different groupings, different subgroups, if you like, within the larger industry. So as the photographs and visual representations bear out, the different spaces of the printing press and the embroidery workshop are um, significant. So there was this kind of segmentation of the production um, in that workshop space. But Elizabeth um, was the sister who took Uh, responsibility for the printing dimension. So, um, she decided that this was, uh, you know, there there was this opportunity for printing, uh, for book printing. She purchased an Albion hand press and she also acquired some some type. Interestingly, she didn't choose modern type, she chose 18th century type. Caslon was the the font uh, that she used. And she was very much influenced by those um, traditional modes of book design. Um, but she had very little um, actual experience of printing. She did a, a month-long course in London, and that was really the basis of her expertise, which is really a very, uh, a very slim basis And um, when you think of the complexity of setting and printing um, works by hand. So it was very much, in a sense, a, a trial and error um, process. And the, the early prospectus uh, notes uh, though many books are printed in Ireland, book printing as an art has been little practiced here since the 18th century um, and it expressed the spe- specific desire to revive this traditional craft. So with that in mind, we can expect the Kula Press books to very much uh, follow that traditional model um, so to be based on you know, the traditional rather than the innovative side um, of printing of the time. <clears throat> now um, from the very earliest stage, W. B. Yeats, the poet, had a strong influence on the work that was published as part of the Dunemer Enterprise. Um, so we see him while while Elizabeth was running the press nominally, he is exerting quite a lot of the of, of pressure, if you like, in terms of the decision making um, around the book, around the books. And this is um, exemplified by uh, the first book they chose to publish which is this one, In the Seven Woods um, uh, work obviously by um, Yeats himself and this particular um, edition is from the the UCD library and it has a signature and also an annotation on it. Now, Yeats himself professed himself to be extremely pleased with the printing of this work, although it is a little uneven. Um, you can see from the printing, um, the take up of the ink is a little uneven. But it nonetheless, it's a really lovely uh, book, very simply printed. And the interesting thing about it is that the, the design template, if you like, for that book would be one that would be continued right through um, the Cooler Press, uh, the Dunema Press, then the Cooler Press, and even in the later revival um, after the death. Of the sisters of the press, we see though that same aesthetic being preserved. So a very plain uh, printing, plain covers, usually grey or blue, um, with a a typed um, title uh, and the title sort of glued on to the spine. So a very very simple sort of handmade production and another feature of the production was the colophon that would be at the end of the of the books um, and that's the colophon, the one in red there in the box, It's the colophon from the first uh, from the first edition Here ends In the Seven Woods written by William Butler Yeats, printed upon paper made in Ireland and published by Elizabeth Corbett Yeats at the Dunemer Press in the house of Evelyn Gleeson at Dundrum in the county of Dublin Ireland, finished on the 16th day of July in the year of the big wind 1903. Now this Year of the Big Wind thing would be something that uh, Joyce, of course, would make fun of in Ulysses, you know, printed by the Weird Sisters in the Year of the Big Wind, as he described it. So, you know, it it was sort of, you know, it was uh, uh, food for a little bit of of satire, perhaps for for Joyce. Um, But that model of, you know, describing the production of the book down to the date of its completion and also linking it to um, specific historical events. So if there was something important going on in the particular year, it would be noted, in the colophon. So, uh, for example, it was noted um, the, the the year of the Sinn Féin rising, for example. So books that were produced in 1916 um, had that designation. Um, so in that way, the, the colophons are not only... Uh, beautiful objects, they show off the, the print and design, the use of the red, uh, the red ink, and this kind of slight triangular shape uh, was, was a, a feature of all the, the Cool Press books. Um, but they also showed that that sense of these books as very much participating in their cultural moment, You know, very much emerging from their context and noting that, um, that emergence. Now, as I say, Yeats was very um, pleased with this production. although uh, it was a little bit uneven. And you can see uh, quite a dramatic development and improvement in the printing quality over the first few uh, books that were produced by Dunema Press. So we see Elizabeth very much perfecting her craft very quickly and showing immense skill um, in mastering um, typography and and book design. And we know from her personality, she was very driven, uh, quite a perfectionist. And in some ways, that energy of perfection um, caused some difficulties in her personal relationships, particularly um, within the family. So, um, Yates then went about, ha- having made this good start with um, the production of his, his, uh, his book, his first book here with um, the, Pre- the Dunema Press, um, he set about then uh, lining up other uh, writers um, and artists to collaborate um, on the work. And um, I'll be showing in in a later slide some of the press marks and devices that he used um, throughout the career of Dunemer and Kula. So he was very interested in the visual dimensions, in the issue of illustration and layout, as as well as the actual content um, of these works. But the content, of of course, of the works would also be a cause of friction uh, between Yates, W.B. Yates, and Elizabeth. Um, Because Elizabeth, of course, had her own ideas about um, what she would wish to print, and sometimes she went ahead and made separate arrangements uh, that were then a a cause of some uh, difficulty uh, between, between brother and sister. Because in a way, um, by doing so, she was transgressing on on W.B. Yeats's uh, role as editor for the press. Um, But then Yeats himself could be a little heavy-handed about the management of that role. And there's uh, a couple of interesting letters from the father who very often uh, played this role in kind of smoothing out the relationship between them. Um, And there's some very interesting insights into that relationship. And this quote, I think, is a particularly interesting one. He writes to to W.B. Yeats, I see that there is some friction between you and Lolly, and I dare say there have been mistakes made. Only don't let irritation or unreasonableness of any kind bear sway. To make Dunemer a pecuniary success is a matter of life and death to Lily and Lolly. Dunemer is, as it appears to them, their one chance of ever having any sort of support in life. That is why they are so keen about things. Um, and everything devolves on them. They have to do the thinking and working in Dunymer. And I think that's a really interesting expression first of all, um, John Butler Yeats is emphasizing that this is a business to the women um, and so it's not just about a kind of creative pride or uh, you know their their artistry in some senses creating tensions it's also about the fact that this is their business this is their livelihood and of course incidentally it's John Butler Yeats' livelihood as well effectively because they're holding the family together so there's an interesting uh, dynamic there. Um, Um, But the sense in which it's, you know, as he says, it's a matter of life and death to them, I think, is a really, it's quite a moving um, description about their emotional and practical investment um, in the business. And then he goes on, I think, to to, uh, clarify uh, Yeats's, W.B. Yeats's role um, when he says, when you advise about the choice of books for the press, it should be advice and not haughty dictation. Uh, backed up by menaces which is quite <laughs> quite extreme um, after all the press is Lolly's business and it means our means of living, our he, he says there, he does acknowledge that and she has other things to consider besides the literary excellence of a particular book there are questions of convenience and commercial expedience and policy, matter for tactful consideration, not to be decided offhand by a literary expert which I really um, love uh, there wasn't much chance I think of don't WB Yeats being offhand about, about much, um, but certainly that sense in which the, the sisters and Elizabeth in particular was aware uh, of her market, um, of her sales, they always had an eye on, on that, of the need to make money, but also of the need to cultivate uh, particular relationships. And I think it's for that reason that they sometimes, that Elizabeth sometimes went, moved away from um, WB Yeats' particular um, selections. Now, the press was using a policy of uh, subscription, uh, which again goes back to an 18th century model of, of printing that would have been familiar in a, in a Dublin context, of seeking subscriptions to the book before they would be produced. So it obviously lessened the risk-taking um, in, in commercial terms. And so um, a lot of the early books um, had were you know, at least 50% subscribed before they were produced. So they did have a reasonably solid... Um, chance of success but nonetheless there was ongoing friction uh, between wb and elizabeth in particular wb um, disputed the the printing of one of ae's uh, books by still waters he thought it wasn't up to AE's standard it wasn't up to the standard of the press and um shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be published um elizabeth refused to to listen and went ahead with it um Yates also wanted to introduce some non-Irish material uh, into the production, which was another question mark, because the women were very devoted and and sold on the idea of preserving a specific Irish identity for the press. So Yates urged the production of the Post Office by Rabindranath Tagore and also um, Ezra Pound who he was collaborating with at the time so um it introduced that international flavor um into the into the production Now, um, as well as moving forward with the production of both um, original works uh, by Yeats himself and his friends, and also some um, selections and anthologies, which were very much, uh, you know, popular items uh, among the production, the early production of the Dunemer Press, the other thing they did was um, a diversity of other printing forms. So they printed Christmas cards and calendars and labels, and, in a more artistically interesting sense, these broadsides, which as you can see, are are very beautiful objects. And they were printed right across the career of the the Dönema and later um, the Kula Press. And the really interesting thing, I think, about um, these broadsides is that they explain a bit, I think, about some of the policies of the press as a whole. So they're, they're very much collaborative works. So a lot of the visual arts um, in this case, in the er, the case of the early series, was done by Jack Yates, um, who had returned in 1910 to Dublin and who who collaborated in in these and other Kula Press, uh, duny and Kula Press endeavours. So they exemplify that familial um, production, but they also combined the reprinting of songs, ballads, poems, and the, and the printing of new work by contemporary artists. Now, one of the distinctive things about Dunimer and Kula as a press was that they produced new work. Most um, of the English models for hand-press printing and you know, the, the, the printing of the beautiful book um, in the arts and crafts movement um, used... Earlier work, they reprinted existing works rather than producing new work, um, and so Kula was specifically innovative in its gravitation towards new, uh, new work. It was also a riskier business. You know, it was a much easier task to reprint something that already had a status and had a market, uh, whereas putting your money on on new writing was was innovative and daring, and I think was is one of their great legacies really, uh, because it makes that work available um, uh, to a wider readership and it very much supports um, the artists of the day so the broadsides and um which are say if you get a chance to look at them, there's obviously ones some in the National Library. I presume there's the some here in the Academy as well, uh, and a, a full set in UCD too. They're very uh, they're very beautiful objects and very desirable and collectible and um, objects now. But again, they show how the two sisters were very much were were drawing in both um, all the family expertise and also the expertise of a wider um, circle of friends um, in their development of this work um, and it shows their their sense of the need to be diverse in, in their production in order to um, to cultivate the largest possible uh, market. We see as well, this is an example of a um, embroidery by Susan Yates um, and again, if you even if you just Google Susan Yates, you, you can see a, a number of these works online. It doesn't give you the full sense, obviously, of the of the vividness and the texture of the work. Um, but there's some really very beautiful um, work by her, and you can see quite a lot of connections between the kind of work she is producing visually and the work that other members of her family, particularly Jack um, Yates, were producing. This is a a cushion that she designed. So some really very fine and beautiful, and now uh, very valuable. Um, work but i wanted to show there are in the case over here if you get a chance to look um after the talk there are some um some examples of cooler press publications from the and um, the academy library here and um, and there's some um here as well that you can see this is again the kind of um exemplary Um, look of the Cooler Press book um, that I mentioned here. So it's always worth looking at at these books, I think, as physical objects if you can rather than online just because it does really, it expresses a lot of the care and the the elegance and the beauty of them uh, as objects. Now, I wanted to just show, um, before finishing the talk, I wanted to just show um, some of the different visual features of the book, uh, the books, that, in particular the ones that W.B. Yeats had uh, an interest in. Uh, these two that are also uh, available in the case over there um, show the particular attention to the devices and the press marks uh, in, the, uh, in the production of these books. Um, the one on the right, which is by Lady Gregory, Again, obviously, a close collaboration in the theatre with um, Yates. But a woman who, interestingly, took very little interest in the activities of the Eight Sisters. Again, this was a little bit of a bone of contention that she tended to rather look past them um, to their brother. But nonetheless, they published um, this work um, by her. uh, And that, uh, that emblem... Uh, of the tree and the woman is one that would recur a lot. Um, you know, it's the most used um, of the emblems of the of the Kula Press um, throughout its history. It was one, however, that um, that uh, Elizabeth would somewhat turn against. Um, she saw it as a little bit weak. Um, Yates commissioned a number of his friends, including Sturge Moore, to um, produce other visual elements. The one on the left, I think, is very beautiful. Um, and his favourite one is, in fact, this one designed by Robert Gregory, uh, a really beautiful and elegantly um, designed mark that he used uh, very often in his own work. And they're just—they're not the full range of images, but they're uh, a number of um, really interesting and beautiful images there. So, really, I just wanted to finish by asking the question: Then, what is the legacy of? and um, the work produced by the cooler press um this the visual legacy of of the work um, for future generations i suppose in ireland and in particular for for the the, the two women and their uh, their reputation and as i said i think the the one of the single achievements of the two sisters is um this marrying of of important content and design, because certainly there were a lot of beautiful uh, books produced in the British Isles in this period of, uh, of printing. And the Cooler Press ones were on the simpler end you know perhaps on the you know they were less ornamented less elaborate than a lot of the um, the English uh, productions hand press productions of the time but in many ways I think they they hold their interest for us even more perhaps because of that simplicity I think they speak to us very strongly today as beautiful objects and they also show a real determination and consistency in terms of that aesthetic on the part of um, Elizabeth Yates in particular she had that particular design and she really um, stuck to it throughout her entire career so she wasn't swayed by by fashions or by the influence of other designers she very much stuck to, her, to that trademark um, production Obviously one of the most significant things about the cooler Press was its um, production of Yeats's work, the opportunity it offered the poet to produce work um, in a particularly beautiful way, to produce gatherings of poems uh, before that they would be produced in larger, more commercial uh, publishers like Macmillan, who was his main publisher throughout his career. So they gave him the opportunity to control that production and create a different kind of readership. Um, and Right through yates 's career and in the way he dealt with some of the the people he invited to contribute to the press, he was very clear there's an interesting letter for example um, uh, uh, to in fact there's two examples of letters uh, where he indicates that the wor- by giving their work to the cooler press, the artist will not be cutting across uh, arrangements that they might have with commercial presses, you know, and that in fact this is a, a separate thing with a separate market, a separate reader. Uh, and so he very much saw it as a very different space in which to publish um, work. So he, he marked it out as that, that place where the beauty of the book and the significance of the content, I think, come together. Um, for the, the women, I think the idea of collectivity, the idea of shared purpose and the importance of participating in a very important cultural moment in Ireland's formation as a nation, uh, both in terms of its independence and also in terms of its, its kind of unique um, cultural um, um, identity as a 20th century nation, uh, they participated very um, strongly in that. And I wanted to finish with um, there are some a couple of quotes there. I won't don't have time um, to read, but there's some very interesting. Um, if you get a chance to look at the letters, some very interesting insights into the attitudes of the two women um, to the, uh, political events in Ireland, especially during the 1916 Rising and during the revolutionary period. So. We can also um, engage with the sisters, I think, as very observant and engaged cultural figures um, who are commenting on what's going on around them politically as well as culturally. Um, but I, I want to finish with this image of um, a book written by uh, Liam Miller, A History of the Dunemer and the Kula Press, which Liam Miller, who is arguably the inheritor of the Kula Press aesthetic, who um, founded Dalman Press in the 1950s, again, one of the most famous of uh, Irish uh, hand press, and uh, beautiful, beautiful objects um, that he created. But the very fact, I think, that he devoted some time to the writing of a history of the cooler the Press, and um, just a page of it there is represented, um, I think shows the very clear importance that the Yeats sisters' work had in unifying visual and literary culture and in providing a template uh, for the publishing and reading of poetry in later 20th century Ireland. Thanks very much.